Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, he is risen. Amen. Amen. Yes. Amen. Uh, if we haven't yet met, uh, my name is Paul Pretty, and I get to uh, be the teaching pastor here, which is just a privilege and a joy. And so, again, so grateful to see you, so grateful to have the opportunity to worship alongside of you uh, this morning. Uh, well, you know, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, uh, maybe a better name for it, there's always hopefully a lot of, of excitement, a lot of joy, uh, right? And I think, though, if we're being honest, sometimes um, maybe our, our joy doesn't match the excitement that we think we should have. Let me just give you uh, an example, a little audience particip- participation to begin this morning. I want you to raise your hand if you have seen the movie The Sandlot. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, most, most, most everybody. If you haven't, so, uh, you know, I think it came out in like 92 or something like that. And um, in the movie, there's this character named Scotty Smalls. He typically goes by Smalls. And toward the beginning of the movie, we see that he moves to this neighborhood. And this neighborhood is filled with, with kids who are really good at and who love baseball. Smalls, unfortunately for him, is neither of those things. He knows nothing about baseball and he's terrible at it. And so he's sort of the odd man out. And so what we see is, is there's one character who sort of brings him into this group. And along the way, there's, there's another character named Ham. And he's doing this Im- impression of Babe Ruth. And he says, I'm the great Bambino. And everybody's looking around. These kids are like, what? And he says it again. I'm the great Bambino. And eventually, all the kids get it. And they're like, oh, yeah. Except Smalls. He says, who? And they look at him like he has 12 eyes. I mean, they, they're like, were you born in a barn? Do you not understand who, who we're talking about here? And He's embarrassed, so he plays it off and says, oh, yeah, 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 I know, I know the great Bambino. I was thinking about that this morning and this week because I remember not too long ago walking into a LifePoint church in 2016 in Delaware, seeing a lot of really excited people, seeing a lot of really happy people, but not personally feeling it and not personally connecting why it was I should be so excited and why it was I should be so happy, but like Smalls from the Sandlot, I played it off. Of course, yeah, I'm excited. And so maybe for some of us, we're walking in this morning and we feel a little bit like Smalls. We feel a little out of place. We feel like, yeah, this is great. But inside, maybe there isn't the joy. Maybe there isn't the excitement. Maybe there isn't the anticipation we feel we should have. And so this morning, what I want to do, church, on this Resurrection Sunday morning is I really want to try and spend our time working through something I think really, really important because our joy for Easter is dependent upon our appreciation of Jesus. That's really the the primary central point this morning, that our joy for Easter, our excitement for Easter will be directly dependent or proportionate to our adoration to our affection for Christ. And so to do that, we're going to start in an Old Testament prophecy given some 740 years before Jesus walked the earth in the flesh. It was given by a guy named Isaiah. Before we get to that prophecy that will really set up the rest of our time together, I do want to pray for us uh, as we open the word that the Lord would open the word to us and do what only he can do. So let's, let's pray this morning. Father, So grateful to have the opportunity to worship. So grateful for the opportunity to gather together. So grateful that today, Jesus, we are reminded that you are alive. That the tomb is empty. That you have risen. Praise God. 
As we open your word, lead us, guide us, as only you can. Send your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, church. So Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 5, the text says this. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Again, maybe a weird place to to begin on Easter Sunday, but as we think through this idea of, of how do we rightly appreciate who Jesus is, this phrasing here that Isaiah uses, so fascinating. He was crushed for our iniquities. Again, I was just thinking about that, processing through that crush. That's such a a stark, harsh word, but that's what the Bible says. He was crushed. And so now I want us to to fast forward 700 plus years later, and, and believing and unbelieving historians would both agree this was written about Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years before. So now we, we fast forward 750 years or whatever it is to Luke chapter 22. And that's really where we'll, we'll begin working our way through the, the Resurrection Sunday sort of narrative. All right? And so Luke 22, uh, leading up to this point, Jesus is, has been with his disciples and they're in Jerusalem. And he knows that the time is coming where he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified. But before that, he, he shares in this meal with his disciples called the Passover meal. It's a Jewish traditional feast. And uh, while they're there, they're in this upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus washes their feet. He bows down and washes their dirty, nasty, grimy feet as a symbol of how he's going to wash them clean from sin through faith in him. It's a powerful, powerful scene. And then from there, the text tells us that they go outside of the city walls of Jerusalem to a mount called the Olive, Mount of Olives. It was very creatively named. This particular mountain was covered with olive trees. Yeah, it's the only one who got that one. So anyway, they go to the Mount of Olives, covered in olive trees. And, and so this is where we're going to sort of pick up our text here. Is this group is with Jesus. He knows he's about to be arrested, punished, and crucified. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39, it says this. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Again, just just to... Recap here, they go out from dinner. He knows Judas is going to betray him. One of the, the, the 12, they go into what's called the Mount of Olives. But, but specifically, if you look at the other parallel sort of descriptions of this, if you go to Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel, what you see is, is that they actually go to this place called Gethsemane. All right? And so as I say that, you're like, wait a minute, I thought you said it was the Mount of Olives. Is it olives or is it Gethsemane? So you can't trust the Bible? Not true. Bible is absolutely true. What's fascinating is Gethsemane is actually at the base of the Mount of Olives. All right, so he's at the Mount of Olives, but very specifically, he's in this garden called Gethsemane. And when you look into the meaning of Gethsemane, what would happen is that at the foot of this mountain, farmers, they would go up the mountain, they would harvest olives, they would then bring the olives down to this area, and they would crush the olives to extract the oil to create olive oil. And so what we see, church, is Jesus 
with a prophecy that says he is going to be crushed for our iniquities, going into this place that is literally named the crushing place. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus is going to this place to be crushed. So I want us to keep that in mind now as we continue on thinking through what Jesus has done. And we actually see how Jesus is being crushed, don't we? We see him pouring out his heart to the Father, and his specific request is what? Let this cup pass from me. What Jesus is asking in this moment is, Father, is there any other way we can save this people? Because Jesus knew that the plan of the Father was to pour out his wrath upon Jesus. And Jesus is saying, please, Father, is there any other way to save them? Is there any other way that... that, Can I avoid this? Let this cup pass from me. But very importantly, he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He is willing, but he's pleading that there's another way. And we don't get a direct response from God the Father. Rather, we get the Father sending an angel to comfort and to encourage Jesus. And so what that implies is that the Father says, no. This is the plan. I'm going to encourage you, son. I'm going to lead you. But this is the plan. And speaking of crushing, the text says that, that, that sweat poured out of him as if it were blood. And I don't think we should read that figuratively. I think we should read that literally. See, there's a, there's a condition called hematridosis. And hematridosis is the medical condition in which a person is experiencing such distress that out of their pores comes blood. The the verified and known cases of this most often happen when men or women have been given a death sentence, when children have drowned, or when somebody has witnessed a horrific crime. The distress level is so great, the terror is so great, the horror is so great that blood begins to come out of the pores of their head. This is what Jesus is dealing with. And so as we're coming in this morning to celebrate as we should, we also need to come in to celebrate and appreciate what Christ has done as he is crushed in this moment at Gethsemane. Complete and total anguish. Now, continuing on in verse 47, the text says this, While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Again, Judas is one of the 12 disciples. Judas has been been walking with Jesus for years. Judas has seen Jesus perform miracles. Judas has seen and listened to Jesus' teaching. Judas just had his feet washed by Jesus. And then he goes to the chief priests and the scribes and he says, I know where Jesus is. Give me some money. I'll lead your sort of gang to Jesus so that you can arrest him. And Jesus, Judas comes up and he says, whoever I kiss, that's the one. Jesus looks at him and says, really? You're going to kiss me to betray me? See, Jesus was crushed by betrayal. Again, as we're working through this, Jesus was crushed by the betrayal of his disciples. Now, continuing on, we'll skip down to to verse 54. It says this, Then they seized him, this crowd that Judas has brought. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following, following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, 
Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter was one of the inner three disciples. Jesus had 12, and he had this sort of core inner three, and Peter was among those inner three. And as they were having this feast together, Jesus looked at Peter, and Peter was like, no, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, you're actually going to reject me. Peter Peter had knelt down before Jesus and said, away from me, I'm a sinful man. Peter, in the midst of a storm, had seen Jesus walking on the water and said, Jesus, ask me to come out. And I'm paraphrasing here. And Jesus had him come out of the boat and and Peter is walking on water and he's got his eyes fixed on Jesus and he's walking on water and then he gets overwhelmed by the, the waves and the wind. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he sinks like a rock. It's very relatable, isn't it? Jesus allowed Peter to come up on the mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration. And on this mountain, Jesus, his glory is revealed to Peter and two other disciples. Jesus, his face shines like the sun, the text says. His clothes turn white as light. He's he's appearing in his glory, and Peter's right there seeing it, just in awe over who Jesus is. And again, Peter, just hours before this threefold denial, says, I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you, Jesus. And now he rejects Jesus three times. You see, Jesus was crushed by denial. crushed by betrayal, crushed by denial, already seeing this physical crushing that he's endured as he's prayed in the crushing place called Gethsemane. Again, we just see the prophecy of God being revealed as true. Now, picking the narrative back up in verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. These are the leaders of the Jews, both chief chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. You see, the charge that they're bringing against Jesus that they believe is worthy of death is blasphemy. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, God in the flesh, and they're saying, no. Tell me you're the son of God? Absolutely not. 
And yet they don't kill him right then and there because they actually don't have authority to. Again, this is the Jewish leaders. Israel and Jerusalem at this time is ruled by Rome. And Rome had told these leaders, hey, you can't just go around killing whoever you want to kill. And so what they have to do is they have to sort of drum up these charges against Jesus and they have to take him to the ruling Roman authority, a guy named Pontius Pilate. And so what you see as you read on in the text is they take him to Pilate and the charge they bring against him is that he's really, he's really inciting the people and that he's proclaiming himself to be a king. And, and, and the reason they really throw in that king part is because their hope is that if, if Pilate sees Jesus as a threat to Caesar, Pilate will kill him. Rome will kill him. So now as we turn over to chapter 23, we see Pilate, again, the Roman authority, questioning Jesus, beginning in verse 3. It says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Rome, evil empire. I find no guilt in this man. And so what happens after that is, Pilate learns that he's a Galilean, so he sends him off to another ruling authority, an evil king ruler named Herod. Herod allows his men, his sort of henchmen, to beat Jesus mercilessly, to mock him, to spit on him, to strip him of of his clothes and put on this purple robe just to make a mockery of who Jesus is. Herod was looking for Jesus to perform a miracle, but Jesus wouldn't do it. Herod finds no real guilt in him, so he sends him back to Pilate. Once again, Pilate questions him. Once again, finds Jesus as innocent. Yet again, Pilate is is trying, though I don't want to get Pilate off the hook. I mean, he, he sent Jesus to the cross, but he's saying, look, I find this man to be innocent. And there's another prisoner at this time, and it was sort of this, this custom that, that Rome would release a prisoner. There was another prisoner called Barabbas, and Barabbas was, was really convicted of insurrection and of murder. And Pilate says to the people, I'll release Barabbas to you. You really want this insurrectionist murderer? And they're like, yes. Give us him, you take Jesus. Pilate's like, he's innocent. They don't care. So Pilate agrees. Jesus, again, is beaten, whipped. And he's led to a place called Golgotha. It's the skull. This hill. On the hill, there's crosses. There's two other thieves there beside him, hanging on a cross. And Jesus is nailed up, nails through his hands and his feet. He's stripped of his clothing. He's humiliated. People are yelling at him, screaming at him, mocking him. If you were really the Savior, save yourself, you proclaimed king. Jesus, in his mercy and his grace, says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And in this moment, Jesus, it says, he's on the cross essentially for six hours. It's on the cross for six hours, just enduring just these grueling, horrific things. And in this, what we see, what we see is that after Jesus was really crushed by injustice, right? In this mock sham trial over and over again, after he was crushed by injustice, what we see Jesus do, if you jump over to Matthew's Matthew's gospel in verse 27, verses 45 through 46, it says this, now from the sixth hour, There was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's he's experienced the wrath of God against sin. He's saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
taking upon himself the punishment that I deserve and the punishment that you deserve for our sin. See, Jesus was crushed by the Father because of sin. Crushed by the Father because of sin. And eventually, soon after he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, verse 46, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's difficult to underestimate the totality of the crushing of Christ. But when you take your time to walk through this experience for Jesus, it is crushing from so many different angles, is it not? And again, as we set out to appreciate what Christ has done, we must see that Christ Christ was crushed so that we wouldn't have to be. And so, Friday, he's crucified, and there's a man named Joseph who, who goes to Pilate and says, let me have the body. After it's been confirmed that Jesus is in fact dead, his side is pierced with a spear. A Roman centurion confirms that yes, Jesus is in fact dead, and that Roman centurion's life would have depended upon that. Jesus died. He is dead. Joseph receives his body, wraps it in linen cloth, and Joseph had an unused tomb, a new tomb. Joseph takes Jesus' body, he takes it to the tomb, places Jesus' body in the tomb, and then a rock seals the tomb. And there's fear that that the disciples are going to go try and steal Jesus' body. And so a Roman guard is posted at the tomb whose lives also would have hinged upon nothing going wrong from their perspective. And Friday night goes by, and Saturday goes by. Can you just imagine the sorrow of Saturday for Jesus' followers? Like they put everything, they abandon everything. And now the save he's dead. Just silence, grief, remorse, sadness, pain. Saturday had to be just brutal. But then comes Sunday. And we see Sunday beginning in verse 1 of chapter 24. It says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, they being some women among the company, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, two angels. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And he does. He walks out of the tomb. And what's amazing, just incredible, is that there's not just an empty tomb, but there's a present Jesus. What we see is that that Jesus makes himself visible to Mary. Then he makes himself visible to two disciples walking 
down this road called the road to Emmaus, another city. What, he see, what we see is that Jesus then appears to the 11. What we see is that Jesus appears in bodily form, eating with his disciples, proving that he is physically resurrected, raised from the grave to 400 others. Without a doubt, he has risen. And because he has risen, church, Jesus crushed the power of sin. Right? Think about it. The power of sin is death. Sin leads to death. Sin is the root of death. Sin is the cause of death. And because Jesus walked out of the grave, therefore defeating death, what Jesus did was crushed the power of death. And church, what that means is that if Christ walked out of the grave through faith in him, you and I, we too will walk out of the grave. That death does not have the final word. That death does not have the final answer. That sin, sin does not have to rule and reign in our lives forever. Jesus was crushed. And in his crushing, he crushed the head of the serpent. He crushed the enemy. He crushed the final power of sin. And church, that should lead us to great joy, should it not? That should lead us to great excitement, should it not? That he is risen. He is alive, and we too have been made alive through him. And one of the things that I love that Jesus does, I said that it's not just an empty tomb, but it's a present Jesus. If we move forward in Luke 24, 36, it says this. As they were talking about these things, the disciples, Jesus stood among them and said to, you, said to them, peace be with you. See, because Jesus walked out of the tomb, you and I, we can have peace. Because Jesus died for our sins, it's what he was doing on the cross. He was taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins upon himself. And because he did that, church, we get peace in so many different ways. I want to give you three before we leave this morning. Because Jesus was crushed for our sins and therefore then crushed the head of the serpent when he walked out of the grave, you and I, we have peace with God. And church, that is the greatest peace that we are all in desperate need of. You see, sin creates enmity between us and God. Sin separates us from God. And we've all sinned, haven't we? If there's anybody in here this morning who says, no, I'm perfect, I'm sorry to say that's just not true. And I think we would all agree to that. We've all lied, we've all cheated, we've all been idolatrous, we've all had our selfish ambitions and desires. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the moment we do that, it separates us from God. We're at enmity with God on our own natural condition. And what Jesus says is, no, 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 no. You were meant for God. God placed eternity in your hearts. You are longing for God. You are meant to be with God. You're meant to be an image bearer of God. I've created you for my glory, God says. And Jesus says, through faith in me, you are restored to God. Because when we believe in Jesus, God the Father doesn't see sinful, broken me. He sees Jesus in my place. He sees Jesus in your place. And that's stunning. You are viewed as holy and blameless. God loves you so much, he puts his spirit within you. You're united with the God of the universe through faith in Jesus. You're at peace with God. Stunning. Because Jesus was crushed and then crushed sin, you and I, we can have peace with other people. We can have peace with one another. The way that that happens is when we realize we're sinners in need of a Savior, suddenly we realize who are we to have issues with other people, really? That's a strong statement, I understand that. Some of us have been, horrible wrongs have been done to us. 
Horrific things have been done to us, and we have done horrific things to others. But when we have a right understanding of the gospel, that every single one of us is a sinner in need of a Savior, and therefore every single one of us who is saved, who has placed our faith in Jesus, have received unmerited and undeserved grace, what that means is by the power of the Spirit working within us, we can extend unmerited and undeserved grace to others. If I received it, so too can they. See, Jesus offers us peace between each other. Walls of hostility have been broken down because of Jesus. Lastly, Jesus crushing sin by walking out of the grave means that you can have peace with yourself. It means you can have peace with yourself. Some of us live in shame. Some of us live in guilt. Some of us operate in just disgust. How could I do that? How could I have said that? How could I have been that? The mistake that I made then mistake that I made then and then and then and then. What is wrong with me? Why? And what Jesus says is, while you were still a sinner, I died for you. While you were still going your own way, I died for you. I desired you. I wanted you. I loved you. And I proved my love and my desire for you by being crushed for you. And suddenly, church, what we must understand is that through faith in Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we are now therefore a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. Through faith in Jesus, you have been made new. And what that means is that the past no longer has to define you. Jesus is now the one who defines your entire future and your entire eternity. If you want to be a new person, if you want a fresh start, if you want newness of life, Jesus is the only way in which you're going to experience that. Jesus offers you peace with yourself. And so on this Easter, when we rightly appreciate Jesus, Easter will be joy-filled. When we walk out of this room today, it's like, this is amazing. And it's all true because he really did die. And he really did live again. And he really does live today. And so as we walk out of this church this morning, this building, building's not the church, we're the church. As the church walks out of the building today, would we be confident knowing he's alive? And because he's alive, we're alive. And would that change the way we function in our jobs tomorrow? Would that change the way in which we parent for the rest of the day? Would that change the way in which we exist with one another? Would that change the way in which we think about ourselves? It should revolutionize our lives. But it all begins with faith. And so, as we close this morning, I just want to plead with you. Just throw yourself onto the mercies and the goodness and the grace of God. Repent. And believe that he loves you and he sees you and he died for you and lived for you. Let's pray together, church. Father, I'm so grateful that you see us this morning. I'm so grateful that you know us this morning. Jesus, I want to praise you for being crushed for us. I want to praise you for being crushed so that we wouldn't be. We're all deserving of the wrath of God. But instead, we get the grace of God through faith in you. And we praise you for that. Father, this morning, would you fill us with joy, with excitement? 
with just an appreciation, Jesus, for what you've done. Would we slow down today? See it. Thank you for it. Worship you because of it. And live changed lives through the power of your spirit as a result of it. Father, anyone here this morning who needs newness of life, I want to encourage them and plead with them that they would come to you. They would come to you and and repent to say, I've gone so wrong. So many ways. So many have wronged me. So many ways. Father, by the power of your spirit, would you remind them that you're bigger than the wrongs done You're bigger than the wrongs done too. And you offer them newness. You offer them hope. Jesus, you offer us peace. And you promised us, Jesus, before you ascended into heaven, you said, go. You said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. And so as we go out into this world, broken as it is, Would we be reminded, Jesus, that you are with us, that you do not forsake us, that you sent your spirit to dwell within us, that you have plans and purposes for us, and that you want to glorify yourself through us. We love you, Father. We love you. We praise you. Jesus, thank you. It's in Christ's name that we come to you, Father. Amen.